Welcome back to episode three. Today, Jay and I want to talk about some of the really cool things that we've seen in foreign markets for me while I was traveling and for Jay just being in Singapore and working on a lot of future work things and things that he's been exposed to. So just to kick things off, one thing that I found when I was abroad is that entrepreneurs get really, really creative on what they're building since a lot of them aren't actually very tech savvy. This idea that I have right now was actually from a really small town in Egypt, not even Cairo, which is the tech hub of Egypt with most of the population. But when I was down south visiting the temples, I was in Aswan. uh, And Mm. there I stayed at a hostel. And this guy, the hostel owner was a serial entrepreneur. He owned this hostel. He owned some restaurant. He also had a tour guide company that took people out to the really, really far temples on the border. And what I thought was really cool is that he also owned this car sharing service. That was an app that he franchised off of an Indian company. I don't even know what it was called, but I think he just decided to look around and say, wow, there's no car sharing service here. And of course, Uber and Lyft and some of the more popular car sharing services that we know about, even like Grab and what's the one in Indonesia called again? Gojek. That's so Mm -hmm. embarrassing. I had someone from Gojek on this podcast, (laughs) but um, not some of these really big ones Mm -hmm. might not agree, but there's a lot of smaller ride sharing apps that Mm -hmm. cover a very niche uh, specific city. He just found it and brought it to Egypt. Didn't have to write a single line of code and like all franchises pays some kind of fee. And I think it was just a flat fee per month to use this app in service Mm. versus an actual commission fee because rides are actually quite cheap. And this person didn't have to deal with development, like didn't have to have his own engineers. It was literally just like selling that service. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, the hostel owner was just responsible for marketing and actually promoting it. And this is actually Mm -hmm. a really great idea for smaller app companies as well to expand overseas and have that additional source of revenue since they can't actually compete um, with bigger companies. And bigger companies don't want to put a lot of resources in smaller cities as well, but it's still really needed. And I just think that this idea, I'm like, wow, I didn't ever consider asking any company to franchise. And actually turns out my mom back in the late 90s reached out to Tim Hortons in Canada Mm. to ask whether she can start a franchise in China. I'm like, wow, mom, you would have been like a multimillionaire if you were responsible for For finding franchisees, but Tim Hortons Mm -hmm. disagreed. And Mm. now look at McDonald's and KFC in China, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think this can apply to a whole slew of different industries. And you said this this Egyptian company, they were using it for rideshare. So how were they finding the drivers? Or like how did how did the two-side marketplace, I guess, like come to be in Egypt if the company itself was in Indi- in India, you said, right? Yeah. So I think they were just franchising the actual software. So similar onboarding okay. process. Okay. Like everything so still was had to in build English. out the two-side marketplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Like it was all fully built out. And all the guy who actually franchised it had to do was find drivers, which he knew a lot of because mm-hmm. this whole town, there's a ton of tour guides and people that work in the tourism industry who are willing to just be drivers. And then it was about promoting it to his guests and then also the hotel guests of his friends in the tourism industry to use the ride sharing service. And 
even his place was super remote and it's really hard to get a cab. You have to call for one. They're not just on the streets everywhere. It was such a good idea. And if he can do it without knowing much about anything else outside of as one, like we can all bring foreign ideas in through like a franchising model. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I feel like a lot of companies, I mean, I haven't explored that at all, but I'd imagine companies that have no in like no real plans of entering certain markets would find that sort of like distribution attractive and would be willing to to have some sort of like fee arrangement where it incentivizes that basically the local sales force but still allows them to get some sort of new profit that they wouldn't have gotten you know otherwise because short of that this one's a little bit different right because they actually needed someone fully on the ground but you'll have like a lot of SaaS companies that might be based in the Bay Area or something. And it might have every once in a while, like, you know, customers in really small markets, but they're not doing anything intentional. It's just more like kind of passively acquiring those types of users. But if you had ways of like using local networks of entrepreneurs who who wanted to be resellers, essentially, that could possibly be another path for the software side of the businesses. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was looking at the no-code founder blog and there was someone that built a no code Airbnb replica specifically for I think Costa Rica or some other tropical place. And he built this on Glide, which is just a spreadsheet app in like five, 10 minutes and it can take payments and the how it competes against Airbnb is just a lower service fee. So a lot of People are looking for alternate solutions of these really big competitors. And there's so many different ways in order to do this. Like even Betacamp is trying to franchise out. We're white labeling our product. Uh, at least we're considering that. And because we need someone to run it. And in exchange in that different we, markets. Yeah. Like yeah. someone already did the legwork to build the operations, like the mm-hmm. technology, all the platform. Mm-hmm. You just need someone that's more familiar with local markets in yeah. order to take it to market. Cool. I like it. Should we go on to the next idea? Okay. So in a related vein, one thing I was thinking a lot about is SaaS rollups. So we talked about it a couple episodes ago, but you know, you have a lot of smaller companies that exist that, you know, that are just SaaS models. They may have been built by one or two people, digital nomads or entrepreneurs who want to create some cash flowing business, but didn't really have plans of making it, you know, venture backed, you know, rocket ship. And now you'll see that there's companies that essentially function like private equity shops where they will acquire different SaaS businesses, so software as a service businesses that are bootstrapped. So they don't have to worry about like paying to get rid of, you know, investors who want 100x returns, but they can still give a nice exit for these entrepreneurs. And then they will roll them up into almost like a portfolio of different businesses that they can then do things like cross-selling or do different sorts of like pricing experiments so that they can, you know, create more value for their private equity firm, as well as like leverage shared resources. So think like having a content marketing or growth arm or having uh, customer support or customer success teams that are just spread across multiple properties. So I thought that that was a really interesting idea because, you know, it decades ago, right? If you if you studied, you know, financial services and you studied like investments, like private equity is a very old asset class. Mm-hmm. But in the SaaS space, I haven't heard about it until recently, where you know it's it's obviously not as big as typical private equity, where we're talking hundred million dollar, billion dollar assets under management. This is probably like ten million dollars is probably all you need, or five million, or one million. 
um, but you're buying these really, really small businesses that may have, you know, they might have monthly recurring revenue of a few thousand dollars, but you're buying them. You're trying to find ways of like targeting a specific customer persona. So maybe like you're building, a, you're buying a bunch of businesses that all cater to like the small business owner or to like an HR executive. And then you're finding ways of like reinforcing those businesses so that they are able to sell more effectively to larger audiences or commanding a higher price point. Yeah, I love that. They can share traffic. They can share operations. Mm -hmm. And learnings Um, and stuff, right? Like you you do a certain test and you're like, oh, well, that test worked really well. What if we apply that that same type of blog content for for this property as well? Mm -hmm. I think this is like a really good idea. It doesn't even have to be 1 million. I actually think a couple of friends who have like business background can buy up some of these, like start a fund. I feel like mm-hmm. on micro acquire some kind of yeah. sales platform for small businesses, just of the exact founders that you described, people that just don't want to continue with their product because they have a better idea and they want to move on are willing to sell their products for a couple hundred K and mm-hmm. you just bring three of these together and make profit immediately. They're all profitable yeah. and then start acquiring other ones. I think this is this is something that I've actually personally been interested in. I actually think that this year I would love to buy a business and just see whether I can actually mm. do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm the same way. I've been thinking more and more about this idea, actually. Yeah. Someone else do the legwork part exactly. of it. I think we're, we're really into this buying a business thing. This kind of reminds me of like bundling, but they're not one product, right? Like, let's say you bundle a bunch of HR products. That's kind of your Mm-hmm. area of expertise yeah. but like when you're selling this to hr clients they might not want to use 10 different All products different, they might yeah. just want to use one exactly yeah and so i think you would maybe it's maybe it's less so specific customer and more like a customer segment right so it's like if you want to target smbs or something like that and and there's different functions within an smb you know i i haven't thought deeply about like mm-hmm. what sort of a strategy makes the most sense, but you might be absolutely right where it's like, maybe it's not targeting one specific buyer at a company because that person may not want to use your whole portfolio. But maybe if you're targeting, you know, companies that sell to other companies of like this size of like a one to $5 million revenue or one to 500 employees. Mm-hmm. And they're all tools that like fit within that niche it it then allows you because i think what you're trying to optimize for is the learnings right like cross yeah i think i think the the operations when you said people are sharing if they can share customer support etc that would be the most kind of beneficial not just learnings but also seo etc i feel like it's very optimal because i've actually recently invested in this kyoto hotel and this hotel it's owned by a fund they own multiple hotels and they would buy hotels really close to each other so that they can share staff and they can share bedding and they can share like products and pillows. So moving that into the SaaS world, I think a lot of it will come through operations. Potentially. I mean, you yeah, you could do small, mid-size enterprise. I would personally recommend just focusing on like, if you're going to do enterprise, have an enterprise portfolio, mm-hmm. or if you're going to do mid-size companies or, or small businesses, have a portfolio that attracts that specific segment because there's a lot of other factors that come into play like enterprise for example those are longer sales cycles you're probably going to have to have a larger sales force it's not as easy to just like 
have something and hope people come to it as opposed to like small businesses. You can, you can probably just do more content marketing and other sorts of, so like the, the strategies in terms of like customer acquisition change, depending on size of customer and type of customer. So I think that's where I would do thinking on if I were to build a business like this is like, which customer can I consistently go to market or, or attract in the same way across my portfolio so that um, when I think about cross-selling or upselling or bundling and things like that, that that strategy makes sense across the portfolio and rather than trying to figure out like different ways of winning customers across different types of portfolio companies, because then you lose the synergies, right? You lose those learnings of saying like, okay, I understand this customer persona better. Yeah. No, no, no. I get it. I'm just trying to think of like all the other companies that own a ton of portfolios. So like hotel business being one of them, they have like low and high and whatever that I just Mm -hmm. described. And then another industry that I can think of is the alcohol industry, right? So like the same brand might own 10 different alcohol brands and like different beers, et cetera, but they all target a different demographic and they've just struck. But I think that's different opinions and we'll never know until we actually go try it. True. I would (laughs) say the one difference in my mind is access to capital, right? So like if we're talking hotel brands, we're talking alcohol, you know, manufacturers, like if you have the money to make very, very big plays and go after very, very different markets and then still have some sort of shared services, like consistencies and like, absolutely, like you're going after larger pies. But I think if you're Mm -hmm. going to be fairly limited, like if we're talking people who have entrepreneurs who have a million dollars or even $5 million of uh, capital that they can deploy, I would be just much more in tune of like having some sort of standardization because if you go after too much, you're spreading yourself too thin and then you're not getting the, any, you're not getting the same synergies. You're, if you stay really focused, obviously you're limiting your upside because there's probably fewer, there's a smaller market that you're probably going after, but you get to benefit from the synergies. I think we're just talking about different synergies. Like to me, I'm seeing like cost synergies. Right. Whether it be sharing customer support or sharing the same staff between hotels or sharing the same manufacturers. I I think it's a new enough space where there's not best practices there yet as well. So I think either of us could be right. Who knows? Yeah. Cool. Do we want to do one more? Let's move on. Something else that I saw that I'm like really excited to talk about is in Kenya, I became really familiar with M-Pesa, which is this digital currency that they use. And it was originally created for remittance purposes, which is a common problem across most emerging markets where a young person might go work in a city or even overseas and then try to send back money. And forget about the fact that it's really expensive to convert currency and really expensive to like wire money home. I think even in the US, I know friends' parents still use Western Union, which is the most expensive version of sending money home. But within Kenya, the main problem, because it is the same currency, is that in very foreign, not foreign, rural places, there's no banks. So even if someone sends money back, it's really, really hard for people to cash out. And so M-Pesa uses this agency model where they leverage mom and pop shops where there's some kind of cash float and anyone can send digital currency and then cash out or cash in at these little mom and pop shops. And I really, really love that. And the part that I found most interesting is this whole agency model where in Kenya, 
as of 2019, there were 160,000 agents countrywide in Kenya. And anyone can be a, can apply to be an agent as long as they meet certain requirements for business and then like have a certain cash reserve. And these businesses are prevalent, whether they be like gas stations or pharmacies um, are all M-Pesa agents. So I've been trying to really think about like how agency model is used. The most at home one that I can think of was that at Wish, in order to save on last mile tracking and also to make sure that things are guaranteed delivered, Wish has really used local shops as well in more rural areas and send the goods there for people to pick up at those places. And these little shops get extra foot traffic. They can hold and purchase Wish goods themselves to sell in their shops. But otherwise, um, they're more of this like holding space. And I think Wish pays them a little bit as well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, and we were talking earlier, this also takes place in in places like Indonesia, similar to to what you described in in you know certain markets in Africa. In Indonesia, it's roughly forty percent of the population is unbanked. You know, you you don't have many people with stable access to internet or you know credit cards, which are obviously a lot easier to to do online transactions in. So that same agency based model exists there as well. Where there's a couple of companies I know, one called Kudo that got acquired by Gojek, and one called PayFaz, which went through Y Combinator. These companies basically deploy similar kind of network of agents that are mom and pop shops, really small convenience stores, and they will allow users to do a, a few different things. You could do what's called offline to online transactions. So you could go into an agent and pay for certain things like your utility bill or buy a plane ticket. You can also pay for, you could top up your your mobile or, or data plans by just going into these agencies. So a lot of the sorts of like things that you could probably do via mobile app, especially in Western markets, you're able to use an agent who's essentially serving as like kind of that custodian of the internet, right? They're, they're making it so that it's a lot easier for you to do online transactions when you may not have access to the internet. Yeah, they're, they're basically banks. If you're not online banked or banked at all, then you can't make transactions online. And that's why actually a lot of the innovations in emerging markets are more about how do we get people access to internet? How do we get people access to banking? And that drives the whole e-commerce economy, which drives businesses that start as well as more exactly. um, circulation of money. Yeah. And like Google has like the next billion users initiative. I think even with pushes towards, you know, more broad internet accessibility, you're still going to have like rural villages and stuff like that, where it just may not make as much sense from a distribution perspective, for example, with physical goods. And that goes back to kind of what you were talking about with Wish, where having centralized distribution centers that are at these agents where it's like you're already going to the one convenience store in your your village or, or you know going to these centralized points it allows for you know offline goods to be centralized and potentially some of these online transactions if you know that in the rural areas like the likelihood of there being stable fast internet uh, speeds for every household may not be in the next like one to five year timelines yeah I think a good way to think about this also is what doesn't need to exist yet, like what you said, because it doesn't make sense for a company to put resources there. So like mm-hmm. whether it's building a bank or building a like postal office, yeah. like a distribution hub, like what else can people build that doesn't need to be built in rural places like uh, hospitals, but like you can't at like a war <laughs> on or a local yeah. shop, maybe like pharmacies yeah. actually in Egypt mm-hmm. as well. Doctors are not 
any everywhere for sure. And mm. so pharmacists actually take the place of doctors and just do the basic checkup and give you medication. Yeah. So I think like basic medications, basic access to things, if the government needs to distribute anything could be really good, but we're looking at you audience to tell us what this agency model can also be used in. Cause yeah, I think it's, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) maybe, yeah. So if anyone wants to chime in and and let us know in our Facebook group of other use cases for agent-based hubs, that would be really interesting because we talked about a few, but I'm sure there's other models, you know, in different markets, um, in different countries around the world that we just haven't even been exposed to yet. Yeah, that concludes our third episode. Let us actually know because these last three episodes, first three episodes have been really, really different in style. And we'd actually really like to know what we should continue going down on. So hope to hear from you guys. Let us know. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks, everyone.